show on climate change. Brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. I don't understand how people can talk about climate change and not talk about justice. I don't understand how they can make that division uh, between what is happening to the planet without knowing that the situation that we're in right now is a direct result of a history of colonialism and extraction of our people. That's Elizabeth Yampier executive director of Uprose and co-chair of the Climate Justice Alliance. She is our guest today, and I am Rev Yearwood, your host of the coolest show on climate change. Welcome. Everyone, uh, I'm excited for this interview because I have my dear sister, Elizabeth Yampier, who is one of the most amazing activists that I know. Um, hey, Elizabeth, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here with you today on this beautiful, glorious day. You know, I'm excited to talk to you, not only because we've known each other and we've battled together in the movement fighting for our people and our communities, but I want people to really know you. And I think that's a, such an important thing that they understand um, who you are. So who is Elizabeth Yampier? <laughs> that's a funny question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before. I am, um, I am my mother's daughter. I, I'm a descendant of struggle. I'm a contemporary warrior. <laughs> I feel like I've been here before. So I, I'm just really honored to uh, have been blessed with uh, the opportunities that I've had throughout my life to be able to be present for my community in the way that that, that I get to do that. I, I think that's just a real honor. Um, and everything that I have accomplished in my life, everything that I've been able to do, I know that I've been able to do because people made it possible for me uh, to do these things. So, uh, you know, I always say I'm Puerto Rican of African and indigenous ancestry. That's how I was raised. That's not something I learned from spoken word or a classroom. I learned that growing up. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm all those things. <laughs> and I, I can tell you even more than that, that you are a fighter. You're, you're, you're an attorney. Uh, you are an organizer. You, you, uh, I mean, you've done all these things. And the most important thing, that you have been consistent. I think that's the one thing that I admire so much um, about you and what you've done. We have a large um, amount of people who listen to this show from New York and throughout the boroughs. Um, talk to them um, about what it means to be doing activism in New York City. Yeah, no, it's hard right now. It's It's been hard. I mean, I think sometimes people think of New York as this... Uh, you know, this corporate Mecca, and it is that we are in the belly of the beast. Uh, but oftentimes people think of Wall Street and they forget that people live in our communities, that one neighborhood can have like 130,000 people, frontline people struggling at the intersection of injustice um, and, and climate change. And so uh, it is a lot of different neighborhoods with a lot of our people 
uh, really challenged in every way that you can imagine now with COVID, um, really feeling the impact of a legacy of environmental racism feeling it in their lungs and feeling it in their homes and on their deathbeds. It's a a tremendous loss. We hear sirens every morning and every night. And we know that every time we hear them, that it means that someone may be moving on with the ancestors. So so New York City has faced a, a lot of hardship. And, uh, and it continues to, but we, as always, see people mobilizing and creating centers of mutual aid, taking each other's backs and supporting the most vulnerable in our communities. What are your thoughts about the coronavirus and COVID-19? You know, um, I was personally affected by it, lost uh, three relatives in in two weeks and uh, had COVID myself for a few weeks. And what I realized was that everyone in my family who died was a Black Puerto Rican and and I was born and raised in an EJ community. And so when we were going through it, the first thing I said to my husband was that that we knew that this was going to be something that was going to impact our communities more than any other, that the communities that have been enduring uh, health disparities because of, you know, toxics and toxicants in their community because of all of the environmental burdens would be the ones more likely to be affected by this virus. And then the study came out that showed that that was true. I don't think that it took a study, but certainly for us to be heard, it does take a study. But I think EJ communities and EJ leadership throughout the entire country knew that um, if there was going to be a virus, just like when there's going to be a storm, just like when there's going to be any kind of impact that is serious, that our communities would be the ones that would be most impacted. And so it's not been surprising that that happened. And it's also been not been surprising that um, that it's been something that hasn't been given the attention that it deserves by by those who, you know, who would benefit from erasing us. And I hate to sound uh, crazy that way, but it feels that way sometimes. You mentioned uh, we have a lot of uh, listeners who are new to the movement and also young, young as, you know, eight, nine uh, teenagers. So when you mention EJ, what does EJ mean? EJ is environmental justice, and it's a movement that is made up of people of color all over the country that have been fighting, basically started out fighting for the right to breathe, not just for trees and open space. We've always thought of the trees as the lungs of our community but for open space to stop the siting of power plants, to stop the all the pollution and extraction that happens in our communities and has happened for many, many years. And so uh, EJ refers to the environmental justice movement. So now you mentioned you were you're from Puerto Rican descent, um, which means you have a unique, and also being in New York City. So you have a unique crossroads. Talk about Puerto Rico and Hurricane Maria, and also talk about Superstorm Sandy. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Yeah, I was born and raised in New York City. My mom and my father came to New York when they were little, like five and six years old. Uh, They were um, basically what was referred to as excess population. The United States had basically pushed out the poorest people out of Puerto Rico to make space for petrochemical industries and the kinds of businesses that would end up uh, really contributing to environmental conditions in Puerto Rico that were exacerbated by Hurricane Maria. Um, So uh, we came to live, uh, I I know that I went to five schools in eight years because we were displaced and moved around a lot. But, you know, the thing about Puerto Ricans is that our identification, even when we're born here, even if we're second and third generation, is almost our act of defiance. It's our, our way of reclaiming 
uh, our ancestry and in the face of uh, an island that has really been a model of extraction, of colonialism, you know, turning people from that island into second-class citizens in their own nation. So, you know, Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, uh, you know, was a cat five, a category five hurricane that hit a tiny little island that had already been enduring uh, a legacy of austerity and neglect, uh, where the a lot of the folks were unemployed and underemployed. It's an island that was really created to benefit uh, U.S. corporate interests. Um, so those were the conditions when Puerto Rico was hit by Hurricane Maria. And then what we learned was that the United States really took a long time in responding. Um, we had already learned from how the United States had responded to Katrina, and you know about this personally, that they let Black people die, that not only did they let them die and not provide them with services as quickly as they would have had th these been white privileged communities, but then they were displaced and never brought back to the to, to literally historical land uh, where people, where they could trace their, their, their history to slavery. That land is now being gentrified and being promoted as places where people can move to and being, and they're investing in amenities that never existed for the people who who struggled in those communities. Well, that's the same thing that you're seeing repeated in Puerto Rico. You're seeing speculation, land grabs, you're seeing people helicoptering in um, to undermine the work that is happening on the ground by the people who've always lived there. And that um, that's being repeated. What do you mean when you say that people being undermined? Well, you know, there? you see n um, institutions, nonprofits uh, getting funding to come into Puerto Rico to solve the problems that the local folks uh, can solve themselves. That instead of the resources being given to the folks that live there that are trying to create farms and centers of mutual help and health centers and who are engaged in the in the redevelopment of the island, who have a vision for the island, instead of supporting the leadership and the brilliance that exists there, uh, people come in and deepen the colonization of the people in Puerto Rico by assuming that they have the answers and they have the solutions and they can make Puerto Rico better. So uh, it's insulting um, and, and it makes it impossible for people on the island to really reclaim Puerto Rico in the way that they should, given that they're now uh, dealing not only with a legacy of austerity, but also dealing with the impacts of climate change. And so, you know, it's like going into New Orleans, right? And you've got organizations that have been organizing and doing the work for years, and then you bring in an institution from outside, and you put a lot of, you invest a lot of funding in that organization, when and then the people actually doing the work are the folks on the ground. Um, that that is what's happening, in, not just in Puerto Rico, but that's what's been happening all over the United States, and that weakens the front line. It makes it harder for us to be able to take care of ourselves and take care of each other, and build the social cohesion that we need in order to endure and survive in the face of you know the threat of climate change and and the threat of something like COVID. It makes us uh, what one I refer to it as turning us into passive recipients of somebody else's good intentions. You know, when you really believe in local power and community building, you have to invest in the front line and and making sure that the front line is able to operationalize the solutions that they know will work for their community and and build partnerships. You know, because partnerships are not a scary thing. You know, we're happy to work with a variety of people who bring technical support. Um, for 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 projects that are that are that are big. So you mentioned frontline, 
And again, for those who may not understand that, uh, what a frontline, I mean, they may understand frontline and different aspects, but when you, when you say frontline, what does frontline for me mean for you? And what do you mean when they say the frontlines don't have resources to do the work that they need to so do? So it's interesting how, fr- because frontline now is referring to the nurses and the doctors and the EM, you know, the MS workers, the folk, the folks that are out there saving lives right now, they are frontline workers. And that's true. Um, the folks that drive the emergency vehicles. But when we talk about the frontline, we're talking about the indigenous people in this country, black people, brown people, the people who have uh, been, um, dealing with a history of, uh, of exclusion and a history of marginalization and a history of injustice for years and are now uh, fighting to create the kind of future that they envisioned for their children and their families. That's what we refer to as the front line. So you're, you're a frontline leader. I'm a frontline leader. We're leaderful. <laughs> There's a whole lot of us. There's a whole lot of us. Uh, but we come but we come from these neighborhoods, right? We come from these communities. It's not like we helicoptered into a neighborhood and said, "Hey, you know, we're gonna we're gonna save you." <laughs> no, we, we we're from this, and and we've endured this. We we we've experienced this. Our families have uh, have been exposed to a lot of these problems, and and we've lost family because of it. So it's it's very personal. We're the front line. That's very good. And one thing I love, and I want you actually just to give folks your social media. But what I want to to say is that when I I love your social media because you give such a a mama's kind of approach that I love. Um, I, I hope there's a I don't know I, that's probably a great way to put it. It can't be no better than mama's approach, but but you give it yeah yeah there's nothing better than mama's approach. So you give a mama's approach and love. You can feel sometimes I can I can see your tears through your tweets. And I can feel that. I can mm. feel the passion of of wanting to get it together. So I guess in kind of the connection of thinking thinking back to Superstorm Sandy and now Hurricane Maria and the earthquakes, um, you know, what's the one thing from all of that 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 breaks your heart, but also what also inspires you as a mama kind of looks at things? Well, it's it's really funny you should you should capture that that way because that's actually how I feel. So you are feeling my heart in 140 characters, right? Um, I I am terrified. Um, I you know uh, there's a saying in Spanish: "Don't cover the sky with your hand." I see uh, what's happening, and I see the opportunity for us to start building the kinds of relationships that we need so that we can build the kind of groundswell of support to address a threat that is enormous. And we need to be humble in the face of it. And I think that my biggest fear is our inability to get beyond a conventional way of thinking about power and resources and relationships to build those kind of just relationships. So you've got a lot of organizations that say that they care about climate change, but they they basically extract our narrative. They extract our story in the same way that fossil fuel 
uh, companies extract our, our fossil fuel. They are unable to share resources. They are unable to sh- support us unless we are used to support an agenda that they created for us. And I, and I really believe that climate change is demanding a different kind of power structure, a different kind of society where we are building with each other, where we are building across class and race and ethnicity and making sure that the front line speaks for itself. And, you know, I, 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 I believe that and, and I see it every single day. I feel like we move two steps forward and one step back. And I think that part of the problem is that these institutions and these, these folks that uh, see themselves as contemporary missionaries have capitalism built into their DNA have extraction built into their DNA. So they may have intentions uh, that are positive, but their process is a disempowering process. And so and so I pray and work and send out my little rants and my little tweets, trying to see if, I, if they can land in people's hearts and in people's minds and that they become fearless about building the kind of relationships that we need so that we can not only survive this, but that we can thrive. We owe it to our ancestors and we... We need to also accept that these ways of thinking about power and privilege and and resources is very conventional and that we're living in unconventional times and we need unconventional, non-traditional relationships in order to solve them. Speaking of so, in doing that, we know that institutions are very important. And I know you are with Uprose, which I love Uprose. I support it every time that I can and I hope that all who are listening support Uprose. But let's talk about Uprose. Um, what is Uprose? And one thing you mentioned with Uprose and the whole Uprose um, movement is just transition. So what is Uprose institution and what is just transition? Oh, thank you. So Uprose was founded in 1966 by a group of Puerto Ricans at a time during the civil rights movement where there were Black and Puerto Rican organizations getting founded all over New York City. And um, and so it was created to address unmet needs um, in Sunset Park. And in 1996, when I became the executive director, yes, it's been that long, We, uh, I came in, the organization had basically lost a lot of its funding and was about to disappear. And we did an assessment to see what were the unmet needs in 1996, uh, what kinds of organizations existed and what was needed that wasn't being addressed. And at that time, we learned that it was the fact that the community lived in a lead paint belt, that there was a highway that was going to be expanded, that there was less than one acre of open space for every 1,000 people living there. Uh, And so it became clear that the community needed to have an organization that was dedicated to environmental justice. And during that time, young people came in and they started organizing. And so young people were integrated into the organization and they it, the organization became an intergenerational organization with young people on our board and on our staff. And they became integral to decision-making, not a program, not something on the side, but really young people honoring movements like you know the Young Lords, the Black Panthers, uh, all of the young people have basically made it possible for you and I to be talking with each other today. And then we started 
thinking about once we started fighting for things, like fighting against the siding of a power plant, fighting against, we then started envisioning what was possible. And that's the concept of a just transition. How do you move away from an extractive economy, from the polluting clunky stuff that basically gives people asthma and upper respiratory disease? And how do you build an alternative that not only addresses our health, but creates a local livable economy for us? So the most recent example of that is our community-owned solar cooperative, which we launched this past year. It's the first in the state. Um, and so ex models like that, like literally shutting down power plants and operationalizing infrastructure, that is a just transition. So I, I hope that that example is, is a good one for folks to understand that um, a lot of times people get scared because they think, okay, if we get rid of all that stuff, what do we replace it with? Will people still have jobs? Will we still have access to energy? Yes, we'll have all those things, but we're talking about renewable energy. Uh, we're talking about uh, infrastructure that prepares us for recurrent extreme weather events. So, uh, you know, uh, we, we want to, if we always say, keep it real, as we do this, uh, we want to thank 100% as we always, as part of the the, the theme uh, of this. Um, I don't see everybody in the movement doing and putting forth a just transition. Is that me? Am, am I am I missing something, or is that something? Am I correct? No, I think you're right. Um, I think what it is, uh, it's a, it's a few things. One is that we, as a movement, create these concepts and these models, and they don't come out of one person's thinking. They literally come out of the collective, people all over the country coming together and trying to figure out what does food sovereignty look like? What does energy democracy look like? Um, and then folks really sort of appropriating that language and turning it into something else that is not that, that is not rooted in community. And then there's a whole bunch of our folks that are really disconnected and not a part of the work that we do, partly because of a lack of resources that our, our, our bandwidth isn't as big as we'd like it to be. And then there's the issue, because it's really complex, right? One of the things that I often tell my staff is, um, is that when people have two or three jobs and they have to come home to cook, the last thing they want to do is go to another meeting, right? So how do you engage people that are struggling on the ground and engage them in being part of a just transition? You kind of have to start where they live. And so our goal, our vision really is who are the folks that are most impacted and what do they bring to this conversation about a just transition? Well, you know, immigrants, for example, know how to grow things and they know how to make things, right? Um, they leave their countries and they come here where we all become part of the throwaway economy, right? We buy everything. We don't grow it and we don't make it. But people actually need those skills. Black people have always known how to work the earth. I mean, it's, if they hadn't, we wouldn't be here right now. So they're reclaiming those traditions. Indigenous people are decolonizing soil. They're doing things that basically reclaiming traditions that we've always had, but because of the consumption culture have been erased. All of those things are part of a just transition. So our goal and why your program is important and why your platform is important is to let people know that they, if they reclaim some of the traditions of their ancestors, they will be engaged in providing or creating a just transition that'll prepare us for what's coming next. I love that. I, I really do. And I just love how you frame that. It just comes from such a, 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 
a grounding of wisdom and and love and and understanding of where we as a people come from and and that historical aspect of our struggle and our resilience um i guess for me in that and many people are who are now coming into this movement it's exciting to see so many uh people coming into the movement um but it's also for me sometimes troubling because um I believe, as you said, that it is within the frontline communities, it is with communities of color, it is with black, brown, red people, um, indigenous people, who I believe is the solution to the climate crisis. But with that, I think as this movement turns 50 from the environmental sense, obviously the conservation movement is much older than that and has its own issues and problems, obviously. but. From the environmental standpoint, um, looking at it from when EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, was created around that time, and now as folks were kind of um, looking back, reflecting on the first Earth Day back in 1970, so looking at that 50-year span, um, the movement um, doesn't reflect what you said, though. It doesn't reflect the the look of this 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 leaderful, colorful, um, woman-led black, brown, and red people movement. It, it, it looks more like a Birkenstock movement um, than, it, <laughs> than it looks like that. And, you know, and nothing wrong with Birkenstock. I'm not saying that, but I, I think y'all They're know They're making what I'm... cute ones. They're making cute ones now. <laughs> yeah. <that's> just... <laughs> um, but, you know, it looks like that, as they would say. And I think that that, to me, is not the, the way that we can win. And Many of our parents and, and, our, and our ancestors who fought for equality in the 20th century are now have a generation of young warriors who are fighting for existence in the 21st century. So to, to you as somebody who straddles but also is leading this, um, what are some of the frustrations that you get from when you see a movement, particularly when I see, I'll be very, I'll be very straightforward. I know your expertise. I know your background. I know where you, I, I, I've seen the work you've done either visually through the academy and just as you articulate through the academy. I see what you do with people, how people respect you. And then I see other people coming from other groups and they just come in literally off the street and think they're equal to and are belittling and berating and are marginalizing. And I still see powerful people because they understand the movement is so more important, deal with that. I know I said a lot there, but how do you deal with the issue of lack of diversity in this environmental movement? You know, um, I remember uh, when I first came into this that we were fighting to be at the table. And then I got to the place where I, I realized we had to build our own, um, that I didn't want to be engaged in that fight. It was an old fight and it was going to keep repeating itself. And we're seeing it still now. We're seeing the emergence of new organizations that helicopter into our communities, duplicate our work, supplant our leadership, and ride on our coattails and get tons and tons of resources to do that. Instead, and, and, and while saying, while also saying that they care about climate change, and to me, they don't. To me, they're capitalists. Their process is capitalist and extractive because if they really cared, they would be doing some landscaping and they would be checking out where isn't their climate consciousness and where are we most needed? Are we really needed in Sunset Park where, sun, where Up Rose is there? Are we needed in, in, you know, in the South Bronx? So maybe we're needed in Wyoming. Maybe we're needed in West Texas. But it's much easier for the children 
because they're the children of those people who ran those environmental organizations to come into our communities, take our narrative and run to the front, and then also try to bring in some of our young people so that they could get the mic and give the impression that our young people actually have power. It's unfortunate. It's an unfortunate loss of resources. It's an unfortunate lost opportunity to start building the kind of just relationships and engage in the kind of self-transformation that we need. It slows us down. What happens is they start creating all these tables, and then we have to leave our work to go to the new tables that they created. So in the climate justice movement, you know, we're talking about we're we're tremendously diverse. Everything from people in Kentucky and in West Virginia to folks in the Bay, Detroit, the Gulf South, Puerto Rico, and Guam, we're all of us. We've always been like that, right? But these folks, um, are ambitious, they move quickly, they feel entitled to speak for us, and they're funded to do that. And so they are dangerous because they are repeating the mistakes of the folks before them. Um, and they may think they're building a movement because they're building you know, a Twitter following or an Instagram following, but what they're doing uh, is disempowering the front line. So I, I, um, I talk a lot about that, and people may think I'm divisive, but I'm not. Uh, I just really challenge and question a process that is brass tops, that is exclusive in a time when what we need is us sharing resources in a way that is strategic. We should be thinking strategically about sharing power and resources. And what we're seeing is uh, the emergence of a lot of little groups. And the reason they keep creating new groups, Rev. I really believe this is the reason, is that if they join another group, they're going to have to pay their dues. But if they build a new one, they can just race to the front without ever having done the work. They can just take our work and run to the front. And so that's also part of celebrity culture. You know, they just want to be the leaders uh, and they don't understand that leadership is something you earn and that leadership means you're accountable to people. And that that's and there's no accountability. One of the things they do, which I think is really funny, is they will start chapters in different communities. And the way that they justify helicoptering and say, "Well, we have a chapter and we had a meeting," <laughs> and 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 the chapter is not accountable to anyone, right? So uh, they'll say, "Well, we didn't know that was that chapter that said that." My God, that's been done for 50 years, and they're still doing it, and they're still doing it without asking, "Should we?" What about identifying the organizations that exist in those communities and asking, what do you need? How can we support and how can we work with each other strategically? Uh, how can we build a movement together? We have these resources and maybe we can complement those with yours. Those are the questions that people who really care about climate change should be asking instead of, well, we're entitled you know, to put together a petition to talk about the, the peaker in your community and you're not going to tell us that we can't. And we're not accountable to you. We're not accountable to the local community. That's the struggle we're facing with right now, where we've got these organizations, mostly, sorry to say, but they're mostly white guys, male-led, uh, basically just helicoptering in. And, uh, and we're like, but wait a minute. All we're saying is that this is the work that we're doing. And we could work together in this way, but they don't want to do that. And they don't want to do that because to work together means that they might not get the shine. They might not get the funding. And those are things that they, that are part of their DNA. And so I'm saying it's a capitalist extractive culture all the time while still saying that they care about climate change. The other thing that they like saying often is that they move faster 
uh, and that we move too slow because we're trying to build community and we're trying to educate our community and get our community a, you know, engaged in a way that's meaningful. So they're willing to trample on community for expediency. Uh, that's how we got to where we are right now. So this is a missed historical opportunity. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm really sad about it because I thought another generation would know better. So they use climate justice and, and they talk about front line, centering the front line and just transitions. And they use it like they extracted the words from, from hip hop, right? <laughs> they just took it, right? <laughs> they took it and made more money doing, singing, performing, using riffs that come from our people. So yeah, it's part of the culture and it is the culture that will hurt us in the end if it doesn't change. Listen, listen. So for if, if, if you are listening right now, I have to just say you have to excuse this part because you're going to be like, just have to imagine, like I just came and knocked on Elizabeth's door. She brought me in. Uh, I just got some, uh, some, some juice out the fridge because I need to sit on the couch <laughs> for, for this next. You're going to have to be a fly on the wall for this next question because this is me now coming in as an activist, uh, literally wanting us to do better. Please understand, this is me wanting all of us, black, white, brown, red, male, female, humans to do well. But my, my thing is this, we, we, we had Earth Day 50. We just had the Endangered Species uh, Day that, that just passed. My question is this, and I, I get, all of that. And it, it hurts me too to see how they come with that extractive mentality. But the thing that hurts so me even more than that is their silence. As we're dying, like when I see things that's going on with uh, Ahmad in, 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 in Georgia or, or, or Brianna in, in, in Louisville, Kentucky, or man, the list is too long to list of black and brown and red. Our native sisters are being with the man camp. I mean, just too long. And they silent. I'm just trying to figure out what in the world is that? What kind of solidarity, what part of the movement is that part mm. when they just don't say nothing, when they see us dying in the streets? You know, they're killing us. And, you know, I was telling my mom, um, my mom lives in Florida. I said, you know, mom, every day I pray for all the Black people who have been killed, who, where it wasn't caught on tape, where nobody saw it, uh, where there is no documentation for all those lives lost on a regular basis for all those violations of human rights that don't, don't end up in a meme and don't end up on social media. What we see is a fraction of what is happening and has been happening consistently um, to, to our people. And um, I, I don't understand how people can talk about climate change and not talk about justice. I don't understand how they can make that division uh, between what is happening to the planet without knowing that the situation that we're in right now is uh, a direct result of a history of colonialism and extraction of our people. So I, I don't I don't understand it. I don't understand the silos um, and and I don't understand how they're not moved. You know, I, I one of the things I said uh, when Hurricane Maria happened was that when we didn't know what the numbers of people dead were and, I, and we were thinking that it was about 5000 Puerto Ricans dead. And somebody said, well, the media wasn't showing up to the to the rallies. 
um, you know, we weren't getting the, the visibility that something of that size deserved. And I said, if it was 5,000 kittens that were dead, <laughs> if it was 5,000 kittens that suddenly died, there would be an uproar. Or maybe 5,000 blue-eyed blondes, there would be an uproar, but it's 5,000 Puerto Ricans that are dead. And so nobody cares, right? And people said, you're being provocative. I said, yeah, this is very, yes, absolutely I'm being provocative. So I feel like that every single time that I see a notice or, or you know, in, information about, you know, a young Black man, you know, on his bicycle or jogging, just killed, right? That I, I don't understand the, the, the lack of outrage. I don't understand how people don't think that's about them, about their core values, about what their children are learning from them. I, I don't get that. So I, I don't have the answer except that the, the two are intertwined and you cannot care about climate changes if you don't care about justice. You know, the two are, 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 are not only linked by history, but they're also linked by the impact of the communities that are going to be hit the most. And if you don't care about those communities, then you are, then I don't know where you live, what resources you have, what the science looks like to you, but this, this is a fight that, that exists at the intersection of racial justice and climate change, and you can't separate those two. One of the things that I, I, I remember telling uh, the folks that do work on police misconduct and racial violence a few years ago was that they needed to be part of the climate justice movement. And they would look at me like I was crazy, and I'd say, well, because with more recurrent extreme weather events is going to come martial law, is going to come more policing. And so you need to be aware that the changes in our environment are actually going to shape what policing moving forward looks like. And so now they're paying attention, right? And I think it had, COVID had a lot to do with that. But I, you could see what is going to happen to the people who have been you know, incarcerated and the people who are being killed, that there is a connection between those things. I don't know. I don't understand how folks don't see that. It's hard. I mean, I will tell you it, it, it um, you know, and it's hard because then they will, you know, have their conferences and now I guess their Zoom conferences, whatever they have now, but they will, they will just act like when you mention it, it's like a speed bump. Oh yeah. And then they'll just go right back. But let's go to school. Let's go to school here. I mean, I think we have, we have a, a lot of, you mentioned a few things there that I think, you know, in the, the young Lords and the student nonviolent coordinating committee, um, and the Freedom Riders had, had had to go to school. So let's go through a few things. I'll ask you uh, what it is, and, and then you can describe it. So folks who are trying to figure out this movement, they can be like, oh, okay, now I know what that means. So off the top, you mentioned what is climate justice? Uh, climate justice is, I think, is the intersection of racial justice and climate change. It's, um, it's an intersectional uh, movement. Uh, remember that our people don't have a choice uh, between going to a rally against police brutality and going to a rally about climate change, that we exist at the intersection of all of the isms, right? Um, when people talk about climate change, they talk about how climate change threatens social cohesion. Things that threaten social cohesion are unemployment, poor performing schools, police brutality, discrimination, uh, gentrification, displacement, all of those things threaten social cohesion. Ice raids, all of that threatens social cohesion. So imagine a community that is navigating its way between all of that and also faced with climate change. That's where you will find 
climate justice challenges and also climate justice solutions. Mm, all right. Okay. Uh, next one. What is transportation justice? <laughs> transportation justice. I love transportation justice. Um, <laughs> so transportation justice for me, for the way that we, the way we think about it at Uprose is that our communities are judged for getting in their cars uh, without transportation amenities being provided for them. So there isn't mass surface transit. Um, you know, you see places like L.A., Florida, where my mom has to wait forever to get on a bus just to go shopping because there isn't anything around. You know, there, there aren't those transportation amenities. And when they come up with amenities, they're usually amenities that benefit the privilege, like a train or a streetcar, something that is really expensive, moves slowly and goes through neighborhoods that uh, are being invested in for, for upscale shops and for, uh, for high-end renters. Um, and so they'll invest a lot of money in those kinds of transportation opportunities, but they don't invest funding in mass surface transit. And so you've got a lot of communities all over the United States that are living in transportation deserts. And those communities deserve to have mass surface transit. Even the way the funding is done nationally for transportation is that a majority of the funding goes towards building and, str and strengthening highways, but very little of it goes into building mass surface transit. And when you think about how people need that to get to the doctors, to get to school, to get to their job, you also have to think about why mass surface transit is important in the face of climate change. You need to be able to have a transportation that's going to get you, that's nimble, that moves in and out quickly and moves you out of trouble very fast. You know, I look at New York City and I look at the subway system, which is really, really old and clunky and was built way before anybody had ever thought about what Superstorm Sandy was going to do to it, right? And it would take so, so many resources in order to make it climate adaptable. And I think about our industrial waterfronts and I think, okay, that, that may be a place where we could start building for mass surface transit. We need to start thinking about space and how we move people from one place to another in a way that is different. And that's not just in places like New York where you could walk to where you need to go. That's in places like, you know, the Southeast, you know, in different parts of the country where people, unless they have a car, can get there. And you know that keeping and maintaining a car is expensive. And so it becomes a transportation justice issue. Why is, and it's, two, it's kind of twofold, why is youth organizing important? But what, what, what are also the dangers? So, you know, in, in the United States, people like talking about youth-led. This is a country that pits generations against each other, where young people want power and they want to push older people out, and older people want to hold on for dear life and don't want to share power. We believe that community is defined and power is defined by intergenerational relationships, that um that we have to all be at the table together and that we learn across generations. It's how we honor our ancestors. Our communities have always been intergenerational. Even our parties are intergenerational. The way we listen to music and you know, the way that we engage with each other has always been intergenerational. We care very much and deeply about our elders. Our young people do not speak to 
and do not treat elders in the way that other cultures and communities do. And so having youth organizers is really important because there needs to be a continuum of leadership. Young people need to be provided with the training and the support so that they could know how to walk into a room and read the room politically, so that they know how to build power. They shouldn't have to wait till they're older to learn anything. And we shouldn't believe that we have all the answers. To be honest, a lot of perspectives and a lot of understanding about not just social media, but how people are organizing now. I've learned it from people that are below 25. There was a, a young woman, Naisha Mallet, who we sent to the COP recently, and she was in Spain, and they were talking about indigenous people. And she said, Black people are also indigenous people. They're displaced indigenous people. And I, and I said to her, you know, I'm going to say that. I'm definitely going to drop a footnote and say that you said that. So, so the idea that we have nothing to learn from them is arrogant. And the idea that they have nothing to learn from us is arrogant. Uh, the truth is that we need each other and we need to be in community with each other. We have to build a culture of practice that is built around intergenerational organizing and, and leadership building. And I think that that not only feels right, but, but we're, we'll be stronger as a result of it. I feel like as an organizer that there's a lot that I wouldn't know if I weren't working with young people. So, but I am intentional about making sure that our young people are not played and that they don't make the mistakes that we've made in the past and that they've learned from ours. And so we need to be able to create the spaces to train them and to build the kind of youth leadership that, that is part of an intergenerational movement. And so youth organizing is at the center of that. The other thing is that, you know, when a 15-year-old talks to me, they, 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 they see me as an elder. But a 15-year-old who's listening to an 18-year-old, that's power right there. That's transformational. So there's a lot of reasons why youth organizing is important. I've heard you say this, but when you say community and industrial business resiliency, what do you mean by that? Well, in a lot of our cities, uh, Boston, Detroit, uh, the Bay, uh, Sunset Park, the Gulf, there is, um, there are these industrial sectors, these sectors that were created to make it possible to have a space in the city to build things, whether it's uh, infrastructure, lighting, whatever it is that the need, the, the city's needs are, cement, uh, materials, and so. Most of our lives, these industrial sectors were the sectors that were actually killing us. Uh, these were the places where they put the power plants and the waste transfer stations, where they'd have a lot of the toxic uses that were used to construct uses that other communities benefited from, but we lived in those communities. But the industrial sector now provides us with an opportunity for thinking about climate jobs, renewable energy, offshore wind, permeable surfaces, materials that are sustainable. And if we start thinking about the industrial sectors in that way, and we start thinking about how there can be investments to repurpose those industrial sectors so that they can become drivers of climate adaptation, mitigation, and resilience, they will also be economic drivers that will stimulate the local economy and will benefit entire regions while preventing the communities that, they're, that are their, their hosts from being displaced and from being marginalized. It's kind of like a win-win situation. And I don't think that people are looking at industrial sectors in our communities as, as these places where all that can happen. It would take re, you know, repowering and repurposing uh, some of the uses. But I, 
you know, when I look at Sunset Park and I look at our industrial sector, I see the place where all of this can happen. Everything from, you know, you know, for example, just to give you a little example, our local Costco, which is a business that our community really loves, you know, they treat their employees right and, and people in the neighborhood, big families really love it. But every time that there's a, a microburst, the parking lot gets gets uh, flooded, right? So the parking lot should be built, there should be permeable surfaces. That's the kind of cement that should be used. That means using the local cement plant to make that possible. It should have, you know, maybe it should be using the space for, for solar, you know, for, for having, you know, cars plug in and looking at the space differently. And, and that kind of stuff can be built on our industrial waterfront. So it could be everything from the very local to offshore wind, right? And, and, and having parts come in and assembled and built on our industrial waterfronts. So I, I talk a lot about the industrial waterfront because I think that the thing that created so many health disparities for all of us all over the United States and, and has really hurt our communities can now be a vehicle for climate jobs and for reducing NOx, SOx, PM 2.5, you know, all of the emissions that have hurt our community over time. I love that. I, I really do. I think that's such a, a powerful vision. Well, you know, you listen, this is think 100%. And so, uh, and that's obviously tied into the idea of 100% renewable energy. Um, for those who don't know your definition of that, what is 100% renewable energy to you? So it, it's, it's funny you should ask that question because I've been asked before, what do you think? And I'm like, I always respond with, what do, what do we think? Uh, what do we think? Uh, and the reason it has to be a we answer is that our Climate, climate solutions can't become environmental justice problems, right? So, so for example, if a ship comes into Brooklyn with all the parts for offshore wind, that ship will be operating on diesel and the community that is the host community is going to be breathing that in while they're building for renewable energy. And so for me, when I think about what the solutions are, I think about what is everyone saying? So for example, Brooklyn can't come up with a waste uh, management plan that is going to hurt Newark, New Jersey or Jersey City, right? So collectively, we've come up with definitions that I think are really important. So first, it can't harm people. It has to be non-extractive. The process has to be clean. And what that means is that, for example, you could be building solar panels, but the process may be toxic and your workers may be exposed to that. So if the process is not clean, then it means that there has to be interventions to protect the workers. And so there is like, if you go to the Climate Justice Alliance website or to the Just Transition Alliance, you'll find language that defines what does the process look like? What is a real just transition? How do we build renewable energy that honors people and the planet? What does that look like? Some of the stuff we really can't do. Uh, it's really hard. Like, so for example, you know, and we're in the middle of inconsistencies because we're learning right now how things are made and where the pieces come from. Like we've been talking about battery storage, taking out clunky old peaker plants. Those are the plants that operate when demand is the highest and they're very polluting and they hurt our community's health and replacing those with battery storage. Well, we think battery storage is a great idea, but then when you start thinking about how battery storage is made, that in itself is extractive. 
So we're still learning new things and we're still trying to move it quickly to try to see if we can operationalize renewable energy in a way that that honors people and the planet. But Rev is not easy. It, it isn't easy. And, and, and supporting uh, each other's communities is really important. You know, this country was built on the rights of the individual and self. And people are very nimby. They just think about their community, their needs, their opinion. They never think about how the collective can benefit from these solutions. Central to all of these solutions is what's in the best interest of our people, what's in the interest of justice, and how we can serve people as a collective. Listen, I know that's right. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. I just really had this one more kind of question, kind of a fun question, actually, um, in this. And then um, I just want to get your thoughts on on that is, you know, why is culture important for the movement? But even more so, why is love and a movement being sexy and exciting and and fun important for the movement? And what's your favorite song? Your, your song, when you, when you get ready to go out there, uh, the song that you throw, the song you throw on. <laughs> I actually have one. That, like, I actually have one. So, <laughs> so you know, we've got this uh, uh, electric vehicle with sunflowers all over it, the uprose car, and it's 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 the car that opens uh, that when we're marching. That's the car that that goes ahead. And, and since I have a disability, I'm always in the car. And so when I go into my protest, I'm I'm, I'm playing fight the power. <laughs> And I, and I got it cranked up really, really loud. Fight the power. But listen, we can't breathe without culture and without the arts. Culture is who we are, how we move through space, what the, the you know, music, art, our food, um, how we communicate with each other. It's everything, right? And it is central to how we organize and how we bring people into community. And it's something that has to be celebrated. And then, you know, the arts, if you can even separate them from culture, which you can't, have a way of elevating the, the local narrative and, and making it possible to reach hearts and minds in the ways that we can't individually. You know, you saw with the People's Climate March, how we, in 2014, how we opened with the sunflowers. We opened with those sunflowers because that was Brooklyn's nod to Detroit saying, we stand with you when you fight for water, for free water. Uh, Detroit had been um, using sunflowers in their protests. And so Sunset Park in Brooklyn wanted to show some love for Detroit. And we did it through the sunflowers. We did it through art. We didn't even have to say anything. We just needed to show up and roll in deep with sunflowers. So you know, there isn't a single day in our life that we don't listen to music. There isn't a, a single day in our life when how we communicate with our elders and with our families isn't an expression of culture. I know that in mine, if you see an elder and you don't say bendición, which means asking for their blessings, you get some serious shade. So, so it is not... It is not something that we can remove from who we are. Remember, culture is also how we honor our, the lands and how we treat Mother Earth. It's how we've always done that. And so even the way we honor Mother Earth in our traditions is an expression of our culture. Whether you're talking about our West African traditions, which is where some of our ancestors come from, or whether it's our indigenous traditions, they're almost the same. There's different names for the same things, but they're all an expression of our culture. So that's central to organizing. It's central to policy. It's central to how we build community. 
it's central to how we honor our ancestors and how we honor each other and make sure that it's all anchored in love. And love is, is an expression of our culture. All of it. Like if you came to my house now, you say you want, you want, um, lemonade. I'd probably have some cafe con leche and some sancocho for you. That's my expression <laughs> of culture. <laughs> love it. I love it, man. Thank you, my sister. Please, when folks want to get in contact with Uprose and you, um, what's the best way? What's the social media? Please give them all that so they can support and also be in contact. Yeah. Thank you so much, Reverend. You know, I always love being and I, I love working with you. It's always a joy. So on Twitter, we're Uprose, uh, U-P-R-O-S-E. On Instagram, it's Uprose Brooklyn. On Facebook, and I know they should all be the same, but they're not. But on Facebook, it's Uprose BK. I'm Jan Pierre, it's just my last name. Um, and then if you want to email us, it's info at uprose.org. And we actually do, that's an active email. We look at it all the time. And our phone number is 718-492-9307. And we're working, um, not, we, we, we're having meetings all day. We're, work doesn't stop just because life gets difficult. We we come from that. We come from struggle. Uh, but thank you so much for, for sharing this platform and inviting me to to participate in this conversation. This is how we build and this is how we how we change hearts and minds through conversation. Thank you. And that was the phenomenal Elizabeth Yan Pierre. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100% which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. Think 100, think 100, think 100, think 100.